you've had a great week this week. I want, to, I want to say how to all of our guests how proud I am that you're here. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to be a part of our service today. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you, if you're a guest of our church, I want you to look across this worship center. You are looking at the greatest people in the world. That's how I feel about them. These people, I'm going to tell you about these people, they love the Lord. They love His Word. They love each other. They love our pastors. They love our staff. I am so blessed to get to be a part of this church and a part of these people. We have just finished 40 days of prayer. Actually, it was about two weeks ago that we finished the 40 days of prayer. And it was a great time for us. It was a time in which what I've heard from so many people is that we've just had literally hundreds of families in this church that have begun praying with each other as a family. It's just wonderful. Some have never prayed with each other before. They got together and prayed, and some held hands while they prayed, and some kneeled as they prayed, and others just sitting in their, their chairs at their home, and they were praying together. It is the most wonderful thing, the most wonderful thing that happened with the 40 days of prayer. Now, the groups, we've got groups that have met all during those 40 days and met and prayed together. I'm so proud of what is going on in our church, and our whole church has prayed together. When we pray, every time we pray, we are expressing our dependence on God. This is one of the values of our church, total dependence upon God, and we are expressing that when we pray, we're saying, God, we can't do it. God, we need you to intervene. Prayer is the most wonderful expression of dependence upon God. Vision requires faith. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. Vision requires faith. God always blesses a church when that church is trusting in Him to do what that church cannot do on our own. And when we are praying, we are doing that. We are saying, oh God, we can't do it, and God, we need you to do it. God has given this church a vision that is so hardwired right in to God's word. Such a critical vision. This vision is a vision that God has laid on our heart and it has become who we are. Praise like we just done is so important. We love it. We love when we get the opportunity to praise God with our lips and sing praises to the Lord. It is vital. This is how we express our love to the Lord. It's how we grow in our love toward the Lord. But praise with our lips is not the core purpose of our church. It is a purpose, but it's not the core purpose. If it was, the very moment when a person accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, why wouldn't God then just take us immediately to heaven? Because we can praise a lot better in heaven than we can on earth. But He doesn't. Bible study is not the core purpose of our church. We need Bible study. How is it would we come else would we come to know who God is? How else would we come to understand how we're to live our life? How we can live our best life ever except by the word of God that we bring into our heart? Yes, it's vital in our life, but it's not the core purpose of our church if it were. 
then why wouldn't it be that at the very moment we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, God would take us immediately into heaven to be with the Word of God. We could understand the Word of God far more better in heaven than we could ever on this earth. Fellowship is not the core purpose of our church. It's not the core purpose that God has given to us, but fellowship is very important. It's how we share life with each other. It's in our encouragement. Some, oftentimes, it's the strength that we have as we feed off each other. But i got to tell you, if fellowship was the core purpose of what God has us here for, it'd be better the moment we accept Jesus that he would take us immediately to heaven because we can have tons better fellowship in heaven than we will ever have here on earth. And the same thing can be true, can be said about every other thing except one thing. There is only one thing, only one thing we can do better on earth than we can do in heaven, and that one thing is bringing other people to Jesus Christ. And this is why the Bible has said to us, this is the core purpose that God has for our church. And it was same, the same thing true with Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10? Jesus said to his disciples, the Son of Man has come to. Now, this is a purpose statement. Jesus is giving his purpose statement. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus is saying, here is the reason I'm here. This is the core purpose of why I'm here, to seek and to save those which are lost. And right after Jesus' resurrection, you remember what he did? Jesus came up to what was called the upper room, simply because it was a room that was on the second floor. And where all the disciples were, and the first time the disciples saw him alive again, after the resurrection, Jesus came to the disciples and he said to them, as the Father has sent me, even so now I send you. John chapter 20. What Jesus was saying to them is, I have come to seek and to save those which are lost. And now I'm giving you the same purpose. Your core purpose is to seek and to save those who are lost. And over the next 40 days, as Jesus was with his disciples, he wasn't with his disciples just for a few hours and then he was gone to heaven. No, 40 days, every day, spending time with his disciples as the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus said to them several times what we call the Great Commission. He said, I want you to go into all the world. I want you to share the gospel wherever you go. I want you to teach them to be disciples. I want you to make an impact in this region in helping people come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And God has called us to do exactly the same thing. Guess what? When we do what God has called us to do in reaching others for Christ, it is the highest form of praise and worship to Him. When I was in my 20s and I was a pastor of a, of a church in, in my latter 20s just a few years ago, and there was a problem. People laugh when I say stuff like that. I don't understand. But when I, I was facing a big problem, big difficulty, I, got, I had to solve this problem. And I knew some would like the decision I was going to make and others would not like that decision. 
And here I was, a young guy, and I was just really troubled about what would be the ramifications, but a decision that I knew in my heart God wanted me to do. And so it was a Friday morning, and I, I went into the worship center of that church, turned the lights on, and I got on my knees there at the altar, and I began to pray and just say, God, I need you to show me for sure what it is you want me to do and how and how you want me to do it in a right way. And as I was praying, God brought back a passage of Scripture that my dad had whispered in my ear at my ordination. It was such a special passage of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 41 and beginning in verse 10. And listen to what it says. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Everyone who's incensed against you will be ashamed and confounded. They'll be as nothing, and they that strive with you will perish. You will seek them and not find them, even those that contend with you. Even those who contend with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying unto you, Fear not. I will help you. Isn't that a great passage of Scripture? I'll be there for you. I'll be your strength. I'll be your courage. I'll be your help. You don't have to be afraid. And I remember just sitting, kneeling there at the altar, and I was just, and I read that passage of Scripture, feeling so encouraged, so excited. God, I know what you want me to do. And God, give me the courage now to do it. And so as that was all taking place, I closed my Bible, and I kept praying. And while I, when I started continuing to pray, I heard in my heart God say to me, don't close your Bible. You open it back up again, right back where we were. I got something to say to you. Well, I was stunned, and I opened back my Bible, back to Isaiah 41, and I started in verse 14. Now, I'd read this passage before because I'd read through the Bible, but, you know, there's a whole lot of passages when we read through them, it doesn't really register much. You know, we read through it, we don't exactly know what it means and what God's really saying to us, we just keep right on moving. And I had that happen to me with this passage of Scripture, but, but now I felt like God was saying, no, Mark, this is something special I'm going to do in your life. When I began to study it, I began to realize, wow, this was a pretty important passage of Scripture. What God had already said through Isaiah, by the way, about a hundred years before it actually happened, that Babylon is going to come and destroy Jerusalem. He's going to take uh, the people of, of Israel captive to Babylon and because they had turned their hearts away from God. But God then said through Isaiah, but listen, this is not the end of Israel because God has his hand upon this country and God is going to bring Israel back. There's going to be a remnant that comes back from Babylon, back to the Holy Land. And God was saying to them, and I'm going to pour my spirit upon you, and I'm going to use you. I'm going to do miracles in and through you, and, and I'm going to do what you could not ever imagine through you. Now, that's what he's saying in this passage, but now God is applying this to my life, and I'm stunned. So listen to what he says. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 14, do not be afraid, O worm. Jacob, O little Israel, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth, and you will thresh mountains 
and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them and the wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water and there is none. Their tongues are parts with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put the desert in the desert, the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive trees. I will set in the pines, in the pines in the wasteland, and fir and cypress together. And why? And why will he do these things that are miraculous things? So that people may know and see and consider together that only the hand of the Lord could have done this thing. And only the Holy One of Israel has created it. This passage of Scripture for all my ministry, every time I've been discouraged, every time I've been exhausted, every time I've been uh, uh, depressed, every time I have gone through hard times in my ministry, I've gone back to this passage of Scripture and it has breathed new life into my heart because God has said, this is what I'm going to do in you. A few months ago, as I was praying about the 40 days of prayer, I was praying about what was going to happen and asking God, use, please use these 40 days of prayer in our lives, in our hearts, and turn our church's heart so deeply towards you and so dependent upon you. As I was praying about the 40 days of prayer, I felt God speak into my heart and say, it's time. I want you to teach this passage to Sugar Creek. After all these years, 16 and a half years, I've never brought this passage to you one time. And I have been looking forward to this day. I, he said, wait until the 40 days are over, and I want you to teach this passage to Sugar Creek. So what is God saying? What has He said to me all these years? What is He saying to us now? at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. Let me share with you what I've learned. First of all, notice who God says we are. Isaiah 41 verse 14, do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob. It's not that great, really. He calls Jacob a worm. He calls Jacob a little, little, little Israel. A worm isn't that great if you think about it. All these years I've gone back to God as I've gone through this passage. I'm a worm. And now he is saying, Sugar Creek, we're a worm. It's the most unflattering thing that God could ever speak about us. It's the most weak and insignificant creature on the face of this earth. Nobody wants to be a worm. Not even a worm wants to be a worm, but the worm doesn't even know it is a worm. So there you for, there it is. He doesn't even understand how much he does not want to be who he is.
And I know some in this room saying, what do you mean we're a worm? Look across this worship center. Look at all these people that are here. We've got two campuses as a church. We're about to have three campuses as a church. We're not a worm. No, our big attendance in this worship center and our two campuses and our coming three campuses says nothing about us. It says everything about God. It only speaks about God and what God has done in and through our lives. That's what it says. We can only do what we can do. But I'm going to tell you, our God is able. It talks about the, the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God that has been upon this place. It is talking about the, the provision of God that has been upon this place and the presence of, presence of Almighty God. That's what these two campuses and three campuses and what God has done in this church is talking about. Not us. It's talking about God. You and I, we're able to only do what we can do. But God wants to do so much more than what we can do. This is why in Luke chapter 1, he says that with God, nothing is impossible. A couple of years ago at our missions conference, we had a guy named Eric Ludi, that came and, and he spoke about the glove. You see the glove? I went and bought this yesterday because all my gloves are so dirty, but I wanted you to see a clean glove. And he spoke about the fact that we are a glove. So I want you to watch this for just a moment. You're going to be amazed at this glove. I paid big bucks for this glove. It can do a lot. Get ready. You ready? Here we go. Glove, stand up. Isn't this what kids do and grandkids do when you want them to show out and do all the stuff they can do and now they're in front of somebody, they do, don't do a blooming thing. Glove, wave at the congregation. Come on, come on, do it, you can do it. At least jump off the table. No, just going to sit there. But watch this. When I put my hand in this glove, glove, wave at the congregation. Look here, look here. Glove, lift up this table. Look at this. Is this an amazing glove? And you're saying, come on, you can't fool us. That's not the glove. That's you in the glove. And this is exactly what's going on at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. Because, look, we are the glove. And it's all we are. We have no power. We have in and of ourselves no ability to do anything that would make a forever difference in anybody's life. But when God enters into our hearts, our lives, it is not us. It is Christ in us. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit in us. And there is nothing we cannot do. This is the power that God is saying, I want to use in you. I want to show myself powerful at Sugar Creek Baptist Church. And I want you to understand, the only way you will really understand what that it is me and what I am doing when you come to understand who you are. We are a worm. Who are we? Would you say it? We are a worm. Man, it is a struggle to say it, isn't it? The glory of what God is doing at Sugar Creek is God's glory alone. And we're to never touch the glory of God.
Here is the truth. God is using us because we have been willing. We have been available, and God has used us, but it has always been the power of God. The first thing the passage explains to us is who we really are. But the second thing it explains to us is that what God wants to do with us. Notice what he says in Isaiah 41 verse 14. Don't be afraid, for I myself will help you. I'm not sending an angel. I'm not sending anybody else. I am coming, and I myself will help you and empower you. And seven times in six verses, he explains to us exactly how he will empower, what he will do with us. So notice what he tells us. First of all, he says, God will make us miraculously successful to do his will. See how he puts it? Isaiah chapter 41, verse 15. See, I will, I will make you a into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. What in the world does this mean? Well, actually, what he is speaking, the words he's saying to us, is not culturally understood today. So we got to go back to the Old Testament time. When they made bread, they made it obviously out of wheat, and they would grow the wheat. And then when the wheat had reached its fullness, they would cut the stalks. They would cut the wheat, and they would pile up the wheat in the middle of a threshing floor. Now, the threshing floor was made of rock, and it was solid there, and they would put this wheat in the very center, in a pile in the center of that threshing floor. This is the first picture to show you what I'm talking about. And then they would spread a a light layer of that wheat all around the threshing floor. They're starting now to process the wheat. Here is the second picture. They would use a threshing sledge. Now, it looks like a sled in our language, but in their language it was a sledge, a threshing sledge. Now, this threshing sledge is the tool they would use to process the wheat. So see what happens. On the back side of the threshing sledge, there are rocks. That's what he's saying when he says teeth. They're rocks. And what they would do is that they would cut the wood in a, in a slice, and then they would take a rock, and they would use a hammer and drive the rock deep in to that slit. And the rock was thicker, so then it would push in, and it would stay in. And it would be a rock that was sharp, maybe pieces of metal as well, and they were the teeth of the threshing sledge. Now I want to show you what they do next. Then they put their little children on this threshing sledge because they need a little bit more weight on the sledge, and usually it was two. But you see the guy, the boy is taking a little break because all day long they're going around and around and around and around. Hook it on to the donkey. There is the dad. He's guiding the donkey, and all they're doing is going around a circle. And what they're doing, those rocks on the bottom of it, those teeth on the bottom of it are cutting into that wheat, and it's separating the kernel from the chaff. It's the only way that they could process a lot of wheat if they used this method, and it would break up the kernel from the chaff. So around and around they go until they thought, okay, this, this level, this layer is processed. Now they throw more on. Okay, this is processed, and they would keep throwing it on and process it. 
Now, in between the throwing on, here's the next picture. This is what the dad would do. He would use a winnowing fork, which is just a pitchfork. He would use a winnowing fork, and he would throw this up into the air. Now, they would only do this when the wind was blowing, because when they threw it up in the air, the chaff would be blown away. It's the lightest material, and the that the, the weightier material are, is the kernel, and it would fall back down. And all day long, all day long, the little kids, can you bless their hearts? All day long, they're riding this, this sledge, and all day long, they're processing the wheat until they have processed all the wheat. And then what they do, they start gathering up all the kernels of wheat, and they grind them, and they make bread. And while I'm going through this whole process of learning this, I think to myself, they could have gone just to H-E-B and bought a loaf of bread, and it'd be so much simpler. It just so happens you'll be stunned by it. There were no H-E-Bs or any other grocery stores at the time, and this is the only way they knew how to make bread, this way. God is saying, Sugar Creek, you are a threshing sledge with new sharp teeth, but you will not thresh wheat. I will use you to thresh mountains. Here's what we are. Here's the next picture. We are a threshing sledge. But he says, I will use you to thresh mountains. And notice notice what he says in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 15. See, I will make Sugar Creek into a threshing sledge, new and sharp, with many teeth. And you will thresh the mountains, and you will crush them, and you will reduce the hills to chaff. Now, when the Bible uses the word mountains, most of the time which, when it uses the word mountains, it's meaning, some, it's meaning to use it figuratively. And it's meaning that those mountains are actually symbolic for roadblocks, obstacles, difficulties, things that seem impossible for you to do, but God will use you to do the impossible. We are in... The most amazing place in this country. I don't know if you noticed, but a few weeks ago, officially, the city of Houston, the greater city of Houston, was acknowledged to be the most ethnically diverse city in America. Now, that had never happened before. We'd always thought of New York and and Chicago and Los Angeles, but now we... The greater Houston area is now acknowledged we are the greatest ethnically diverse city in America. And Fort Bend County is the most ethnically diverse county in America. We have, this means we have people from all over the world. I mean, literally, God has poured people from all over the world, every language, every ethnicity you can imagine, and they're here. And now our church, it's the most amazing thing that's ever happened I've ever even heard of. Our church has now looks like our region and has become, if, it's, if this church, if Sugar Creek Baptist Church is not the most ethnically diverse church in America, I can't imagine which church it is. 
And God has poured into this church people from every language, every, every country in the world. It's the most amazing thing. I think we got, we got 90 different countries in, represented in this church, 70 different languages, and God has caused us he has caused us to look like our region. And when He has caused us to look like our region, it means we are the most poised church anywhere that I know of to reach the region because anybody from any country that lives in this region walks in and says, I, pe I see people that look like me. I feel at home in this place. It's the greatest thing that could have ever happened. And God has now made this church so ready and poised to reach the region for Christ. The diversity is a wonderful thing, but it has also brought spiritual lostness and darkness to this region. People coming from all over the world have brought religions, and we want to be respectful and kind to any person of any religion, but there's only one God and there's only one Savior. And so it has brought a spiritual darkness into the region. And it's God who has done this. We face a spiritual lostness in this region. And on top of that, did you know that just recently, Houston is now known as the nation's capital for human trafficking? Houston. Human trafficking is taking these young girls, these young women, and now in slavery being used for the worst things you can ever imagine. And we are the center of human trafficking. No, we don't have physical mountains around us, but we got the worst spiritual mountains you can ever imagine around us. There are mountains of materialism and self-reliance. There is such a deep need for God in this region, and yet such a deep resistance to God at the same time. Our region so needs the Lord, and yet it doesn't know it. We face mountains here. And yea, God. Because God has said to us, I'm going to use you to thresh mountains. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verses 22 and 23? Have faith in God, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, he's not meaning a physical mountain. He's talking about obstacles and roadblocks and difficulties. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. God has given us the greatest privilege in the world. He has put us in a place that has become darkness. He has put us in a place that is in desperate need. And he has said to us, let me tell you something. I'm going to use you to thresh, not wheat, but mountains. I'm going to use you to be a light in the darkness of this world. We might be a worm, but God is going to empower us to be a new sharp threshing sledge to thresh mountains. We're going to be super worm in this region.
And God is going to be the super in the worm. He is going to give us the power and the strength in this world, in this moment, to thresh mountains. Isaiah 40, 41, verse 16 says, And you will winnow them, and the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. God says, I'm going to make this church miraculously successful to do my will. Second of all, he says, God will use us to reach others for him. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 17. And when the poor and needy search for water, but there is none, their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I've never seen a church ever in my whole life. I've never seen a church anywhere that does more for the poor, the physically poor, as this church does. I'm so proud of this church and how this church cares for other people and reaches out and tries to help other people who are disadvantaged, people who are physically poor. But the passage is not about the physically poor. This passage is symbolic from the beginning to end. It is about the spiritually poor. He's talking in the passage about the spiritually poor. There is a difference between being spiritually poor and poor of spirit. God's goal is to change the spiritually poor to the poor in spirit. It's God's goal, and Jesus explains what that goal is when he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does this mean, poor in spirit? You've got to read other translations to sort of grasp the whole idea of what it means to be poor in spirit. The New Living Translation puts it this way, God blesses those who realize their need for him. The common English version, God blesses those who depend only on him. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 says, and this is in the message paraphrase, it says, you're blessed. When you come to the end of your rope with less of you, there is more of God and of his rule. What God is wanting to do is move the spiritually poor in this region to being poor in spirit to come to know God and to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this region is not poor in spirit. It is spiritually poor. We have a region in darkness we may be fine economically, but we are spiritually destitute. We are longing for purpose in life. We're struggling in this region with hatred and doubt and wondering, where do I fit in? We're wondering what matters in life. People wonder in this region, how can I really know God? They are spiritually dry and they are parched with thirst. And God is saying, Sugar Creek, I'm going to use you to do a miracle in this region. I'm going to use you to open blind eyes, to bring a light to the darkness of this region and help others know me and to change their heart to come to have a relationship with the living God. 
Isaiah 41, verse 17 to 19 says, When the poor and needy, spiritually poor and needy, search for water and there is none, and their tongues are parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights. That's our region. It is a barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert. That's our region. We are parched. We are a desert, a spiritual desert. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert this desert that has no water. I will put in the desert the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I'll put set pines in the, in the wasteland and fir and the cypress trees together. This is miraculous. None of these trees, none of these trees could grow in the desert. God is saying, I'm going to so change the brokenness of this region. I'm going to so change the darkness of this region. I'm going to so open the blind eyes of this region that it's going to turn from a desert to an oasis because of my word. He, the water is symbolic of the gospel, and the desert is symbolic of this region, and the heartbeat of God is to reach people in this region with the good news of Jesus Christ, and he's going to use this church. We're not the only church he's going to use, but he's going to use this church, praise God, not dead as a doornail, but a church that is live and growing and going, and God is using us because we're willing for God to use us. He wants to use this church to see the unsavable become saved, the cold-hearted be warmed, those tired of living in despair to see His glory. God wants to show us what He can do and what He will do with a people who are sold out for Him. So look at why God will use us. God wants to use us to bring glory to his name. Isaiah 41 verse 16, that we will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. It's God's glory, not ours. It's God's glory, not ours. Would you say that out loud with me? It's God's glory, not ours. Psalm 44 verse 8 says, In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever. God wants to show himself strong in our region. And Isaiah 41 verse 20, I love this passage. I don't know how many times over the course of these decades I've read this passage and said, Oh God, let this be me. That they may see and know and understand together that only the hand of the Lord hath done this thing. And only the Holy One of Israel has created it. I don't want to be a part of a church that that can be explained by our talent and our ability. I don't want to be a part of a church that can only be explained by what we can do. I want to be a part of a church that can be only explained because only the hand of the Lord has done this thing and only the Holy One of Israel has created it. That's the church I want to be a part of. I want to be in a church that's a runaway horse with God on the saddle and us hanging on to the tail. And, oh, God, we don't know what you're going to do next, but, oh, God, we're following you. We're hanging on, and God, use us the best you want to use us, but be our strength. Be our power. That's the church that God uses to do what you and I cannot even imagine 
Oh, pastor, how in the world are we going to do this next thing, do that next thing? I don't have the slightest idea. But our God does. God's vision's not about buildings and lands and campuses and numbers. God's vision is about reaching people. You got to have campuses, you got to have buildings, but God's vision, God's heart, God's longing is to reach people who need him. And see what's required of us that we do it together. That word that is you, Y-O-U, throughout the entire passage is in the plural, that we would do this together. There is a phrase that this church used 20 years ago before I came, and I want to bring this, this saying out of retirement. And the saying is this, the best is yet to be. I thank God for all He has done in and through this church and all these years and all these decades in this church. But I'm here to stand here and tell you that we ain't seen nothing yet. That the best is yet to be. And when we yield ourselves, when we yield ourselves, there's no telling what God will do in us. Here's what I want to say to you. I want to get out of the way and say, oh God, you do what you want to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, God, I thank you for this great passage. This great passage. That is 100% about you. God, we acknowledge we're a worm. That we cannot do anything of any eternal significance that we're a glove, that we have no power. And we invite the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We invite the provision of God. We invite the presence of our Heavenly Father to come and take over and use us. You be the power and the glove. You, you be the anointing upon our life. You be Jesus inside of us and use us. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory, your word says. And God, that's what we ask for. Be God among us and do what you want to do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.